starting John 19, and while you're turning there in your Bible or your electronic device, I want to remind you one last time about Married Life Live this Friday night at 6.30. It's going to be a great time. It's going to be great food. Um, some of our ladies are making us just a great Mexican meal, and we're going to eat, and we're going to have fun. We're going to laugh. We're going to hear some very, very strong, challenging things. And so I encourage you to do it. As Michelle said in the video, this is not just for married people. It's for anyone who on your radar one day you would like to get married, you'd like to be married. If you're single and you're 17 and you want to be married one day, this is going to be some really, really good stuff for you. So I hope that you'll be part of that. And also, speaking of younger people, uh, we have a college ministry that's going to be starting uh, this summer, and we're going to have an informational meeting coming up soon. And I want to encourage you, college and young singles, if you're interested in that, uh, we're, we're going to be saying more about that in the next few weeks, but just keep an eye out on the announcements. So we're in John 19. We're going to be looking at verses... 1 through 16, but let me just read verses 1 through 6 here, kind of to set the scene. Then Pilate, this is Pontius Pilate, you looked at him last week, took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See? I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, your truth, your, that gives us life, that we can anchor our lives into, that can give us everything we need, God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the word, to live this life in a way that pleases you, that represents you, that honors you. And God, I pray today as we look at a story that may be uh, familiar to many, God, help us to see that you suffered, you bled, and you died so that we could have freedom we could have freedom from our sins and live life for your will, God, for your glory, God. And I pray today that the things that are hindering us from living for you fully and completely will be identified through the Spirit's work in our heart. And God, may we confess those and walk out more eager to glorify you in our lives and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been driving on the interstate late at night and you're driving and you look in the rearview mirror and all of a sudden you realize that you're in the left-hand lane and you've just passed a semi. And you're like, I totally don't remember going past that semi. Anybody done that before? Like, that's what's called living on autopilot, right? You're just, like, this is a huge deal that you just passed a semi at night, but you've done this mindlessly. Or maybe another example, uh, I was spoken at a men's retreat in Texas this past week, and that we went down into a canyon. This was my friend Jeff Oldham's church, and we spoke at this group of guys, and we went in this canyon. There was zero cell phone service there, none whatsoever, and the majority of the guys didn't have access to the Wi-Fi. And there's this one guy, we're sitting around after the meeting, and we're just talking, many of us, and, and he's just looking through his phone, and all of a sudden he like puts his phone down, and he, and he looks at us, and he says, what am I doing? He's like, I don't even have access to anything I just, out of habit, just scrolling my phone. 
that's an example of being on autopilot, right? You're just doing something. I mean, you checked your social media feed, you checked your email, but still you go back and just swipe away, trying to think of something, you know, to kill time, autopilot. Or another example, maybe a little closer to home, literally. Maybe you're sitting there, and it's usually the guys are guilty of this, right? We're sitting there, we're looking at our wife, and she's talking, and we're nodding our head. And all of a sudden, she says something that gets our attention, and we're like, what'd you say? And they repeat the last line, and then you go, oh, no, no, I mean, what did you say? Like, the whole thing, right? I, I didn't hear any of it. That goes well, right? You need to be at marriage mentoring conference this week, right? If that's happened to you. But that's, that's, that's on, that you're living on autopilot, all right? Well, the guy that we're looking at in Scripture, and I know it's not spelled the same, all right, so don't think John's an idiot, all right? Um, auto, he's living on autopilot, like literally. Pilot, Pontius Pilate, is living on autopilot. What do I mean by that? He's ruling this jurisdiction in Judea where, truthfully, it's not the main attraction. It's not the main show. He's there. He's just killing his time, doing his duty, trying to get back to the big show, which is Rome. That's where anybody with any real aspirations would want to be, and he's far away from there. In fact, history tells us that he had aspirations to be on the Roman Senate. This guy wanted to be someone. But he was just going through the motions, hoping that just his days would go by fast, and he could get his real job that he was always wanting. Well, there was a problem. And that problem was in the form of a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus came to him and he encountered Jesus, he had to do something about this situation. You see, when we encounter Jesus, it requires something of us. When we see Jesus for who he is, we just can't go on living the way that we would live. We have to make a decision. Jesus demands a verdict. And so Pilate wants to avoid any, making any decision about Jesus. He tries hard throughout our text last week and this week to do anything. He tried to compromise. I'll give you a Barabbas instead. He tries to pass the buck off to Herod. He ignores his own conscience that's telling him this is not what you should do. And in verses 1 through 3 of our text today, he tried to appease the Jews by taking Jesus, punishing him, beating him, allowing the soldiers to mock him, and bringing him back out in front and saying, you know, this, isn't this good enough? So Jesus, Pilate tried to do everything just to just make peace, make it easy, keep going the way he was going, and not cause any disruption in Israel and for himself back in Rome. Well, again, Jesus requires us to do something about him. And so Pilate, in verse 4, he, Pilate went out again to the people. This is the crowd, the mob that had been gathered, more than likely handpicked by the Jewish leaders, trying to stir up trouble and get some pressure on Pilate to kill Jesus, to crucify Jesus. He comes out to him and says, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Pilate brings him outside dressed in this kingly costume. He's barely, it's barely covering the wounds and he's beaten. Jesus is bloodied by this point and he's wearing this crown of thorns on his head. Blood is trickling down his face. And Pilate says, Behold the man, right? Is this good enough for you? Here he is. All right, And if you missed last week, you saw that, as Roy spoke, that that was phase one of Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. And to get to this point, if you need called up, Jesus had to go before the Jewish leaders, the Jewish high court, the high priest, 
which was Caiaphas, and Caiaphas would have had to bring formal charges against Jesus in order for the Roman government to entertain the fact that, yes, does this guy need to be executed or not? And the religious leaders are driving this because they hate Jesus, all right? We've been in the Gospel of John for a long, long time, and we've talked about the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders a lot, but just to recap why they hated Jesus so much, they were jealous of Jesus' popularity. There were many people who followed Jesus, who loved Jesus. He was a, a celebrity at points in his ministry. They despised him for exposing their hypocrisy. He constantly got into it with them and pointed out to them how evil their hearts were. He claimed to speak for God. That was a big no-no, right? In that time, you're claiming to speak for God. You claim to be God. And they couldn't accept someone who said they were from God, yet he had friendship with sinners and tax collectors. But let's be clear. The pilot wasn't concerned about any of those things whatsoever. That wasn't the problem for him. Like, that, that was no big deal for him. He didn't care if Jesus committed blasphemy. That wasn't on his radar. All he cared about here was the politics, and particularly his own future in politics. Back in chapter 18, verse 33, he asked Jesus straight out, are you the king of the Jews? And so the question behind the question there is, are you trying to cause trouble for me there, buddy? Are you trying to cause trouble? Are you stirring up the people against Roman Empire? That's what he cared about. Now remember, this is Passover time. The, the, the city of Jerusalem has inflated by several million people. There are a ton of people there. So you can understand Pilate's concern. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you tr causing trouble? History showed that Pilate, again, had these high aspirations, and the land of Judea was in constantly, it was a, a pain in the side of Rome. And so the fact that, that Pilate was there to maintain peace actually showed that maybe that he was a legitimate like, ruler and that he actually was somebody they put a lot of trust in. But the problem was Rome demanded peace. So he's trying to keep the status quo here. He's trying to find the path for greater power to himself, and to succeed at do that, he had to walk very gingerly and carefully and needed to be wise because he knew that the reports of what was going on here would reach Rome. And in Pilate's opinion, Jesus did not represent a, throat, a threat to the Roman Empire. And we see that in verse 4. He says, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I found no guilt in him whatsoever. Now, it's easy to look at this situation and think Pilate may be weak. Look, Pilate is not weak. History shows us that Pilate was very, very brutal. He would beat people into submission. He ruled Judea with an iron fist. But the sort of the behavior that was usual for the Roman emperors, this was very common, but he took it a different step, a step higher. He was particularly tough on the people. And by the time of Jesus' trial, this put him in a very difficult position. And also, history tells us that Pilate... There's this little political games that are going on with the high priest Caiaphas and his father-in-law and, and the, the power struggles that were existing in Jerusalem at this time. And, and Pilate knew Jesus wasn't a threat to them, and he knew that the, the leaders of Israel did not bring Jesus to him because Jesus was a threat. He knew this that wasn't the case. There was another agenda going on here. And so from the religious leader's perspective, that Jesus was a problem because of his, what he said about God and said about who he was. Again, Pilate didn't care about that. And so Jesus is basically 
and, and, and from a human point of view, he's a pawn here, right? He's a pawn in this power struggle that's going on. But we don't want to ever think of Jesus as a pawn, right? We don't want ever to think of Jesus, and we'll see this in our text in a few minutes, Jesus was never out of control. We've talked about this the last weeks. This was God's plan. God's plan was happening. It was unfolding. But nevertheless, even though Jesus knew the cross was inevitable, and we know from reading the story, we know the cross is going to happen, but still there's just something about seeing our Lord and Savior standing there with this crown of thorns on his head, with this robe covering his beaten and bloodied body, being mocked and hit and made fun of and pretend to be worshipped. It's a very sad and disturbing picture if you think about it. And it goes back to, made my mind think of Isaiah 53, 2 and 3, where Isaiah, many, many years before this, wrote and prophesied about the Messiah. He said, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he is despised, and we esteemed him not. So there is Jesus paying the price for our sin. He paid the highest price possible to give us the greatest gift possible we can imagine. And he suffered for our sins. And not just in some general blanket our sins. He suffered for my sins. And he suffered for your sins. And I think when we see Jesus in that way, as we look at the crucifixion narrative in the next couple weeks, and as we think about Jesus on trial here, and we see him being beaten and mocked and ridiculed, he did that for our sins. And I think when we see that and we really allow our mind to grab hold of that, then all of a sudden we can't make our sins seem small or insignificant. They put Jesus on the cross. They cost Jesus his life. And so we see Pilate here waffling. He's not ready to give in to the religious leader's demands. Look at verse 6. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And this is sarcastic. He knows that they could not legally take Jesus and crucify him. But he's trying to find a way to satisfy their demands for blood without completely giving in. Pilate does not want to condemn Jesus. He doesn't. And much of that is due to his obvious observances that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is not a threat. It's a vendetta by the Jewish leadership. But it's also, again, driven by Pilate's ego. He does not want the religious leaders to get one up on him. He's like most of us. I mean, he, his pride is getting in the way here. And so the Jewish leaders continue to work the crowd up into a frenzy, and they continue to insist Jesus must die. In verse 7, they say, We have a law, and according to that law, this is a Jewish leader speaking, according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Now again, Pilate didn't care about this. This was not an issue. Maybe at this point they were so upset that they didn't even realize what they were saying. Maybe they were just you know, thinking that this would be helpful to their cause. Whatever the case is, Pilate responds in a way they weren't expecting. Pilate responds in a way that, look at verse 8. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. Even more afraid. Why was he afraid in the first place? Let's talk about that for a second. 
uh, he was greatly influenced by superstition, as a lot of people during that time would have been. And if you know the story from the other Gospels' perspectives, Matthew records that Pilate's own wife sends him this urgent message imploring him to do nothing against that righteous man. Because why? She had this dream about him. And she says, don't do anything. Don't do anything. And the Romans placed a great deal of weight on dreams and visions and omens and those type of things. So whatever the specifics of the dream, we don't know. But Pilate's wife was disturbed enough to warn her husband. And so when Pilate heard Jesus, he's out there claiming to be the son of God. What is that about? He's concerned. Pilate needs to ask Jesus more questions here. Look at verse 9. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? All right. Now, he knew Jesus was from Galilee. All right. We've already established that with the whole Herod and the jurisdiction thing. But what he's really asking Jesus, what he's really wanting to know is, are you a man or are you a God? You see, he's recognizing, he's seeing there's something special about this man standing before him. Again, this is not just a common criminal. This is, I mean, we may think that messiahs were just rare and there was, you know, Jesus was the only one who came on the scene claiming to be a messiah. No, it was a pretty common occurrence in first century Israel that you would have people claiming to be a messiah who were going to lead their people and, and, and destroy the Romans and bring freedom to their proud heritage and their proud society. And so Pilate, this isn't his first rodeo. He knows that there's something special about Jesus. Of course there is something special about Jesus. How can you stand before the God who created the universe and not realize there was something amazing about him? I mean, even the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they knew there was something unique and special about Jesus, but their own agenda clouded them from being able to see the truth. And the same thing is true with Pilate. He's, he's seeing this. His conscience is telling him, don't put this guy to death, yet he still, his pressure and the pressure to succeed, his aspirations, and so he's in this dilemma. And so Jesus doesn't ask, respond, look at verse 9. Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus stood there, didn't, didn't respond to it. Pilate's irritated that Jesus won't respond, so he thinks he can intimidate Jesus with threats. How funny is that, right? Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? And the emphasis in the original language is on to me. All right, Pilate's like, to me? I'm the man here, right? If I ask you something, you better respond. They want you. They want blood. It, your, your fate is in my hands. How dare you not say anything to me? And then look what he says. He says, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Well, Jesus does respond to that one. Jesus answered him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This last little segment de definitely refers to Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders who orchestrated this. But picture this situation. Picture that Jesus, he's mocked and he's beaten. He's, he's in this costume. They're mocking him, making fun of him, belittling him. Jesus seems to be at the mercy of Pilate. Thumbs up, he lives. Thumb down, thumbs down, he dies. It seems like everything's in Pilate's authority and his power. So it makes no sense whatsoever for Jesus to respond this way. Jesus isn't afraid. He's not afraid at all. No human authority will 
decide his fate. Jesus is standing there, and he knows. Pilate, you may think that you're in control here, but you're not in control. Pilate, you may think you're the man, and you may think you can say whether I live or die, but that's not the case at all. Things are not what they seem, right? But Jesus, interestingly enough, he doesn't challenge the authority of Pilate over him. He informs him that God is the source of his authority. So any authority that you're bringing in this situation, Pilate, that authority is being given to you by God. So he has no authority unless God hands it to him. And so we have the king of kings about to be crucified, but Jesus is saying, look, you can kill the king of kings, but you can't touch the kingdom. It's way bigger than you, Pilate. Your kingdom's going to come and it's going to go. Kings rise and kings fall. But the Lord's name remains forever, right? And I'm sure Pilate, he just thought, how is this guy saying this to me? When I have him in this condition and I have his life in my hands. You know, I, I, I thought as I was studying this passage about Pilate, you know, he recognizes there's something special about Jesus. But I think about like the moment he died, he realized what a grave mistake he made, right? What an eternally damning mistake that he made. That he could have responded to Jesus differently, yet he chose to look out for his own aspirations, his own self. Pilate had no control unless God handed it to him. Let's remember that. Just a side note. Let's remember that in our culture. Roy touched on this last week. But in our society, I mean, things are just quickly spiraling out of control, right? I mean, every day it seems like there's something else that used to shock us, but now we don't even get shocked much anymore because we're almost immune to how evil and rotten this world is getting and has gotten. Now, let me just say this. This is nothing new. The Roman times were evil and rotten and terrible. Christians were taken into the Colosseums and fed to lions, and, and for sport, they were killed. And so there could be worse yet to come for future generations, right? But it's a tough time. But we have to remember that regardless who's in the office at the White House or the governor, we remember that God is the one who gives his authority to that person. And that's tough to swallow, right? I mean, we don't like to hear, really, I have to show respect at some level for that person who's in control, who has making decisions that seem so anti-God. I mean, Scripture even goes so far as says to pray for those who are in authority over us. So it's not enough just to respect, but to pray for them. And so Jesus looked at Pilate, and he, all he could see was, hey, you know what? You think you're the man, but you're not the man. He knows what's going on here. And then we need to remind ourselves of that. That's why we can have what Paul says in Philippians. We can have a peace that passes understanding. Paul says, cast your cares, cast your anxieties. How often do we do that? Instead of scrolling our phone through the news feed and then getting our anxieties worked up and we're all bent out of shape and, and we're angry, do we cast our cares upon God, as Philippians tells us? As Paul says, cast those upon God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Things that cannot be fully comprehended can nevertheless be 
something we can deal with peacefully because we're in Christ and we're experiencing this peace because of what Christ did for us. The the text we're looking at, the count of the cross, that's ground zero for all that who we are, our identity. Everything about us is because of the cross and the empty grave. And if Jesus did this, and we put our faith in Jesus, it changes everything. That in Christ we know that God is sovereign, He's in control, and no matter what happens, God is the one that's ultimately His kingdom is coming, and His will is going to be done. And he rules and reigns and guards our thoughts and guards our feelings. I mean, you know, I think we know at the high level, 30,000 feet, that God's in control. But what about your thoughts and feelings? Right? What about those things that you struggle with and your mind just keeps racing back to and you're trying to fix it in your mind? You're trying to deal with it in your mind. You're trying to, you know, work out that situation or relive the past. Let go of that. Seriously, let go of that. The peace that we can experience in, this, in Christ and the knowing that he's in control and he's sovereign even over those things that get into our heads. And so God has ordained the authority over us and he holds authority accountable in these situations. And so he tells Pilate, yes, you have authority. I'm in control. But Pilate made real decisions here, right, that he's responsible for. Also, I, just on this idea of authority for a second, Think about this, and just what the Thomas is up here this morning just reminds me of us as parents. What a huge responsibility we have with the authority that God has given to us, has delegated to us, in order to train and teach and disciple our children. Right? He's given us such a responsibility to be intentional with our families because of Jesus and what he's done for us. You know, I've lived this life now for 52 years, and sometimes I have to just, like, shake my head thinking, what, am I really? But, you know, I'm going to be a grandfather soon. Laughter included, yeah. People laughed. That's funny. Um, I think I can say this from, from a place now that, that comes from experience. Dads, talk to your sons. Seriously. Be real. Be real with your kids, especially men with your sons, women with your daughters. Quit playing games. Quit getting your mind so focused on the short term that you miss the big picture. There's so many dads that just can't say the name of Jesus. They're scared to pray in front of their children. Man, what are we doing here? If we're not taking ownership of the authority that God has given us in the home. He said, I'm putting you in charge of this little flock of children to raise. Not just so they can hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. So they can be a force for the kingdom of God in this world. Yet, most of the time, that's the furthest thing from our mind as parents. Get into a good, healthy routine of leading your family to the word. I think about my own parents and how that every night, six nights a week, Sunday, we took Sunday off because we went to church twice, but six nights a week, we were in the Bible as a family together. Nothing rarely ever took that place. We made sure almost all every night that we had that time together. And look, my dad, he wasn't perfect uh, for sure. Like four or five times in my childhood, I seemed almost throw down with the neighbor, right? And, and he, was, he was a Marine, and he was a tough dude. But 
you know what? One thing he was quick to do, always admit. He would go to the neighbor and say, hey, sorry about the way I acted. Or he'd come to us and say, I'm sorry I lost my cool. You see, authenticity and being real and true covers up a lot of sin, right? It, it helps with that kids thinking, oh, my dad's just a hypocrite. My mom's just a hypocrite. But when we humble ourselves and say, I blew it. I didn't handle that right. It changes their mindset about you. It changes your, their mindset about the situation. All of a sudden, you're owning it because they know you're not perfect. Quit trying to be that way. And so God gives us authority. He gives us, he delegates to us the responsibility. Just like he gave to, to Pilate. Don't let your spiritual life go on autopilot. Seriously. Well, I'm just going to let the church take care of it or want to. GCA, I'm just going to let, I'm just going to delegate my authority off to others because I'm not really that skilled at speaking about Jesus, and they're the experts, and I'm not the expert, right? God has called you to lead your home and to lead your family. Don't go on autopilot. So Pilate, he thought he could keep everybody happy here. He thought he could keep the, the peace and keep everybody appeased, and then he could just ultimately for himself, he would be for his advantage. He would succeed. And look, verse 12 again. And then from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. He was still looking for a way out of this. He was looking for a way, but the Jewish leaders, they only intensified their efforts and began to apply some serious political pressure to Pilate. They were not going to let this go. Look at verse 12. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So with this statement, the Jewish leaders were effect effectively threatening Pilate. They're basically saying, what will they think of you when this gets back to Rome? On Pilate, what's this going to do for your career that you have standing before you a man who claims to be a king, yet you're going to just beat him and let him go free? How's Rome going to respond to that? And I think this is the secret weapon that the chief priests and the religious leaders had up their sleeves here. They knew that they could push back on Pilate in this way. If Pilate lets Jesus go, the news will find its way back to Rome that Pilate is not watching out for Caesar's best interest by disposing of these political rivals. So Pilate was afraid when they said this. And how did he respond? Look at verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words... He brought Jesus out and sat, down, and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Arabic, um, Gabbatha. I'm sorry, Aramaic, Gabbatha. And so this is the place where Pilate could issue his verdict, the death penalty. In verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And I think John notes this. Because this is the day of preparation of the lamb to be sacrificed for the Passover meal on, on, some, on Sunday. I'm sorry, the Sabbath meal. And so Jesus being the Passover lamb, John makes sure he points that out. And this connection is emphasized there. That Jesus is coming to take away the sins of the world. And then verse 14. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate, again, tries to get out of it. He said to him, shall I crucify your king? For real? God, like, really? You want me to do that? And the chief priest answered, 
We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. All right, just allow that to set with you just for a second. Who's saying this? The high priest of Judaism, of Israel, the religious leader that the people look to to lead them to God. And he says, we don't have any other king but Caesar. That's astonishing. No other king? Did they ignore the fact that God is their king? No Jew in their right mind would say this, especially a Jewish leader. They hated Jesus. They hated him so much that they were willing to ignore God and align themselves, at least in this moment, with Caesar, right? The, the hatred just stoops so low. The head of the nation goes on record and says, we're subjects of this pagan emperor. Wow. In verse 16, so he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate. He was just looking for another day in the office. Just go easy, do my time, get to the big show. But what a travesty of justice that one of the most evil acts of human history, and, and literally Pilate, Matthew tells us, Pilate went and washed his hands and say, his blood be innocent of my hands. I, I, I don't want any part in this. And he turns him over for crucifixion. But he's not innocent. He can't take the middle of the road, you know. I think a lot of people want to do that. They, they want to look at Jesus, see Jesus, hear the claims of Jesus, read the word of God, and they want to say, well, I want, I want Jesus on my terms, right? Because like Pilate, I, you know, I, I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to achieve things in life. And if Jesus can help me do that or make me feel more comfortable or more secure in this life, then I'm fine with Jesus. But Jesus comes to me on my terms, right? I live by my life, by my standard, the way I want to live. And when it's convenient, then I'll bring Jesus into the picture. So many people sitting in a church today across this nation, that's their attitude. They walk out. They never look at their Bible again. They never engage Scripture. They never pray serious prayers. It might be a, a meal prayer. And they forget if they're truly a believer God has bestowed upon them the title of ambassador for the kingdom. All right? Ambassador for the kingdom of God. We represent God's kingdom. We represent him. So as we walk around the streets of Bainbridge or Decatur County, when people look at us, they should say, whoa, there's a guy who represents the kingdom of Jesus. What a huge responsibility, right? Because Jesus demands a verdict. We can't say, let me have some Jesus. Because Jesus says, it's all about me. It's all about my life, my death, and my resurrection. The problem is we have a divided heart. Scripture talks about that. talks about Psalm 86 talks about having a divided heart. James talked about being double-minded. And I think that's where a lot of us live is, is this fact that we want to play Christianity a lot of the time. But Jesus said, anyone who's not for me is against me. Not for me, you're against me, Matthew twelve thirty. So now is the time for us to be serious about discipleship. In our marriages, 
with our children, in our community. Discipleship. Helping the future generations not just learn more head knowledge, but be confronted with the person of Jesus Christ and said, you're going to need to make a decision about Jesus. Because you live in a world now where if you claim the name of Jesus, it's not going to go well for you if you're serious about it. That if your track is on, like, pilot, prosperity, power, influence, success, Jesus is going to be a more of a hindrance to you than a help to you where our day is headed. And we got to get beyond our current mindset. Like, for, we think, oh, you know, my kid knows enough to survive, but what about 15, 20, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, when you're off the scene and they're living in this world with their family? How equipped are they? Are they going to say, man, I looked at dad and he was a great example and he taught me about Jesus so well and spoke into my life, man, I'm ready. Or the, your daughter says, man, my mom, she spent her time, she was busy washing dishes and doing laundry and working a job, and she was busy, but boy, she was never too busy to invest in my life for Jesus. And as your kids launch off onto their own, they own their faith. They see, this is real, because it was real with my parents, and it's real for me. We have a great responsibility to disciple. You know, one thing that's so awesome about Grace Church is the number of young families that God has entrusted to us here. It's crazy the number of little kids and babies that we have. The strong, they brought their baby to church like one week old, right? I mean, that's awesome. Like, like we're having babies. Kids are growing up here in this ministry. Are we being faithful to them? as we said about the Thomases, as a church. Are we teaching? I, I love the Iwana ministry. The Iwana ministry is one that we just instill within kids the truth of Scripture, and they memorize Scripture, they learn Scripture, and it sticks with them. It really does. And, and so we, we have all these kids that are just flooding into here, and then we also have the, our GCA, which is under Sean's leadership now, I mean, things are just taking off, and Sean is, was just the right time came in when things were a climate, a culture where many people want a Christian education for their kids. Our homeschool population is booming here, and families who have your kids in public schools, you know that you're working hard and diligently to disciple them because you know every day they go into a mission field where they better be ready or not. They're going to be eaten up. And so we have this responsibility as parents to come alongside other parents and encourage them and help them in discipleship. And so, Sean, Sean's it. Come up here for a minute, Sean. Sean's the Elder of the Month, actually. And I ask if we could move his Elder of the Month talk to the end of the service because this so much is applicable to not only G-Kids and Awana, but also to GCA and what's going on here at GCA. And I just want him, as he transitions to our Elder, his Elder talk, to just talk a little bit real quick about how that we are coming together for, to, to move, to, to create more space for our G-Kids and for our WANA and for GCA so we can touch more kids with the gospel, with Jesus Christ. And so tell them about our plan we've been working on, because you've been more a part of this than me in many ways. Yeah, so really, uh, going back probably nine months ago, um, we started to talk collaboratively between GCA and our leadership and then 
Grace Church because, like he said, we're growing concurrently. Uh, if you walk into that G-Kids wing on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night, you're probably overwhelmed and thinking, where are all these kids going? Um, you know, they're packing them in closets or, or like in a drawer somewhere. They're, they're packed in there, and that's, a, that's an awesome thing to see as a church. Like he said, that we're, we're growing from the bottom up. Well, at the same time, GCA is growing. Like he said, I came on board uh, in August, and really just God's timing um, seeing the growth that's happened here. So if we go back almost 30 years ago when the school was started, I think with 47 students, some of you guys in this room were here at that time, uh, it's just as a, as a ministry that partners with families. I mean, this was a group of parents, and, and some of y'all are sitting in this room who said, we see a desire and feel God saying to us, we need to create something where we're working together between families and a school and the church to partner in the discipleship of children. I mean, that was really the core idea behind the founding of GCA was how can we partner with families who have a Christian mindset um, to disciple kids? It's not to replace parents. Like he said, our, our greatest responsibility as parents is the discipleship of our kids, I think. And so GCA certainly isn't to replace that. It's certainly not to replace the church. To me, it's this three-pronged effort that we're together working to disciple our kids, that we're saying the same things, and it's being reinforced at the dinner table at night. It's being reinforced on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. And so we're at this point, and we see this point coming, uh, where we're outgrowing uh, our current facilities. It's, it's both in G-Kids, and it's on uh, Monday through Friday uh, at GCA. And so we don't want to get to that point where we're out of space, and then what do we do? We're looking forward here in the next year, a year and a half, to say, if we continue growing at this rate, we're not going to have space for students. And so we started uh, the school year at about 350 students. Uh, we've, we've been enrolling this spring for next school year. And, and as of Friday, I think we're sitting at 366 uh, for August. And that's still growing. Numbers are coming in every day. And so as we kind of started working on this process back in, uh, in August and September, along with Mitch and John, um, with Roy, and we started looking at what can we do on this campus to facilitate the growth that we're seeing in G-Kids and Awanas and also uh, during the week. Let me just insert one thing real quick here. You know, as we've had these conversations, you know, the obvious is, hey, we're meeting in a gymnasium. Like, let's build something we can meet in. But, Sean, both of our hearts is, man, this is working fine. And we saw at Easter we could add another 100, 150 people in here. We need space where we can truly minister the most days of the week, the most effectively we can, and, uh, and really put our time and energy and focus into children and discipleship of children and youth. And so um, Noah's going to show us a picture. We've worked with an architect to really try to come up with some kind of picture of what it's going to be look like. And this is not, this is low level like stuff. The architect will come back with 3D renderings and all these things. But this is something our elders have looked at to way to improve our space so we can accommodate uh, more church families, more school uh, students, and so we can minister and make an impact upon future generations for God's kingdom. And again, this is just an uh, early drawing, this, and there's going to be a lot more to come, but we wanted to throw this out to you just so for the future you can kind of know we're working hard to figure this out, and we're going to need to partner with you because this you know, building right now is super expensive, as, as you know, it's going to take a lot of money to put, to put this together and to build it. But we really feel uh, this is what God's calling us to do. Get, real quick, just explain to us what we have here, and then, we'll, and then I'll turn it over to you for the elder talk. Great. All right. So uh, just in essence, what you see in kind of the blue-gray uh, color is, is existing buildings. 
Um, and so, um, you know, we're, we're in essence not touching that space. Something that's happening sooner rather than later this summer, uh, what you see right there next to existing schools where it has the two new classrooms, we have an immediate need. So we have kind of this long term in the next year, year and a half, we're going to need space. We have an immediate need for next school year. And so uh, what's already been approved by the elders and will happen this summer uh, under Roy's guidance is the building of two new classrooms in the current cafeteria. Um, and that's just to accommodate growth that we're going to have for next year. Of course, we have to have somewhere to eat um, during, during lunch. And we're already splitting our students between the cafeteria and the, old, and the OS. And so what will happen this summer is those two classrooms will be built in the current cafeteria. And then uh, in what is now the OS, that stage and wall will be taken down to, to have this one large space. That will temporarily allow us all to eat in that one spot, but then have some immediate classroom space. Um, kind of the longer term plan and what the, the architect has put together for us here is that reddish pink color, uh, which is basically a connector wing uh, between the school building and the gym. And that wing would house uh, three classrooms downstairs and then three upstairs, so kind of the standalone image uh, down there where it says new second floor, that just rests on top of those other three classrooms. Uh, and, then a, and then a hallway that's enclosed that has a dining hall, cafeteria, and a kitchen. So from a school perspective, we all eat in one spot. It's a dedicated uh, space for a cafeteria. As a church body, to me, that really excites me for things like Married Life Live or church fellowships where we would have a spot to all sit together and, and eat as a congregation. Um, what that would then do is allow us to move out of the OS and the church building um, to where you see the OS currently sits for some dedicated children's ministry space. So while temporarily that would be one large room this uh, summer for next school year, at the point where we could build uh, that pink uh, uh, wing between here and the church building, or the school building, we could then build in some classrooms and a large group space specifically for G Kids and Awanas so that we could continue to grow there as well. I know it's a lot of information to take in and we don't mean to answer all your questions through this and we mainly just wanted to throw it out there so you guys could begin to pray, think about it, and look forward to seeing the future. God's been so faithful, and as uh, some of the guys who have been here from the beginning remind us of God's faithfulness and the way that he's provided for this ministry year in and year out. And, and I really feel like if anybody asks, what is a disciple-making church in Bainbridge area? Grace Church would probably be the first church that they would say because we're serious about discipleship, and I hope that you are fulfilling your calling in your home and in your marriage first and foremost so let me pray and then i'm going to turn it over to sean for our, our normal elder talk time god we thank you for your word that you go into us god help us to not just be content and satisfied with just having a little bit of you in our lives and then running off doing our things and uh, promoting things for our kids and getting excited about things that really have no eternal significance whatsoever god i pray you'll help us to be excited about the discipleship of our children seeing our children understand and be able to articulate the truths of scripture and seeing this culture as a mission field not as the enemy and help them to see that they've been called to represent you in a hostile world and god we pray that you'll help us to continue to see our church as we're an embassy we're, we're a, a place to come and to learn and to experience the goodness of the kingdom and to go out and to share and make a difference in this world god and help us to continue to own that I pray that just the, we won't be on autopilot. We will remember this. and We don't want to go on autopilot. We want to be intentional with our homes and our families about you, Jesus. In your powerful and strong name we pray. Amen.